0: All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bowl and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at MoNews. News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bowl and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you, and it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code monews over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code monews for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everyone. It's Moshe with a breaking edition of the podcast on a historic day at the Supreme Court. A 6-3 majority of the Supreme Court Friday overruled the precedent of Roe v. Wade, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion. The law had been in effect for nearly 50 years. It's a decision that sends the issue back to the states and potentially Congress, and in the meantime creates a patchwork of laws across the U.S. It is also sure to reshape our nation's politics. I thought there was no one better to talk about all this and its impact than Sharon McMahon. She's a former high school government and law teacher turned Instagram phenom. Over at her Instagram account, at Sharon Says So, she breaks things down and answers your questions on all things civics, history, politics, and sometimes wildlife. Her page is a treasure trove of content today, breaking down the ruling step by step. She has read all the 200 plus pages of it. Sharon and I spoke just hours after the ruling on Friday afternoon. And before we get started here, just a reminder to follow the show on the podcast app you're listening to us on right now, and leave us a review. Your support makes a difference. Sharon, you've had a few hours to read the decision now. It's 200-something pages. Um, This was originally about a Mississippi abortion law, and yet now we have the Roe precedent overturned. How exactly did we get here?
1: We got here with a large enough conservative court majority. And we know that because you can look at the concurring opinion written by John Roberts, who is the Chief Justice, where he says that he wanted to only answer the question posed by the state of Mississippi, which was Are there any pre viability restrictions on abortion that are constitutionally permissible? He did not want to go so far as to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so we know that we got here because there was a large enough court majority that they wanted to go farther than where John Roberts wanted to land.
0: And so on what grounds did the, uh, as you go through the, the main ruling, the majority decision, what were the grounds they used? I know there was a lot of language about reigning in raw judicial power, ignoring history. Um, take us through, as far as you're concerned, the, the highlights um, and, and the main arguments that the court yeah. used to overrule this 50-year precedent.
1: So the bottom line is this the constitution according to the majority does not mention abortion previous courts found that the right to abortion was found in a right to privacy it was found in unenumerated rights contained within the constitution this court decided that those unenumerated rights need to be established on it with a test and the test has a two-part basis the two-part basis is is it integral to a well-ordered liberty is this right integral to a well-ordered liberty which is the foundation of what the country should be run on and additionally is it deeply rooted in our history and traditions that's what those that's a two-part test and the majority of the court found that number one, the constitutional right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in our history and traditions. And number two, is not integral to a well-ordered Uh, well-ordered liberty. And they gave the example of if we say that it is integral to a well-ordered liberty, then we're also saying it's okay to do things like use illegal drugs and engage in prostitution. We cannot use this concept of bodily autonomy and follow it to its logical conclusion because it would give rise to the constitutional right to do things like engage in prostitution, which the court does not feel exists. So that's really to put it more simply number one we have no history or tradition of a constitutional right to abortion and number two um it is not integral to uh, to the way society needs to work
0: so there are obviously a lot of things that have changed over the 250-year course of american history um what are the implications here um because there's a lot of attention being paid to clarence thomas's concurring opinion in yes. which he says it's time to revisit some other cases uh, that have to do with gay marriage, uh, birth control, etc. And yes. yet at the same time, the majority opinion says this is only about abortion. Can you yes. kind of break that down for everyone?
1: Yes. So it's important for people to know that a concurring opinion means, I agree with the conclusion of the court. The conclusion is there is no constitutional right to abortion, but I agree for a different reason. And that so Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Roberts all wrote concurring opinions, and in Thomas's concurring opinion, he does go um, a pretty remarkable step outside of uh, judicial history. And what he says is that there is no such thing as substantive due process; that the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment is grants people. equal process. It does not grant them any specific rights. And so he says that any case that is predicated or based on substantive due process like gin or being able to have a same-sex relationship in the privacy of your own home, those types of cases are predicated on substantive due process. And he says that substantive due process is a legal fiction and so while he agrees with the court's conclusion today he says in the future we should revisit the concept of substantive due process and re-examine the precedent set by all of the cases that are resting on the backs of substantive due process
0: and yet at the same time it it doesn't appear like the other five conservatives are on board with that. That's right. and, and, and so there's a lot of folks who are saying, well, you know, the justices in their, in their Senate hearings you know, said that Roe was precedent, and look what they've done. You know, how seriously should I take what was written in the majority opinion today as far as this only pertaining to abortion and not revisiting other issues?
1: Mm. It's a fair question, I've been getting that a lot. And I will say that despite what appears to be Thomas's desire to revisit some of those cases on, a, on the basis of law, he, it does not appear that he has any kind of numbers or support to move that ball down the field. Uh, it doesn't appear that the rest of the court is on board with his, con, with his uh, construct of there is no such thing as substantive due process. It doesn't appear that other people agree with that.
0: Yeah, just give people a sense of Clarence Thomas. I mean, he sort of lives on an island sometimes on his own over the Supreme Court, doesn't he?
1: Mm, Yeah, he is definitely one of the uh, more uh, strongly right uh, leaning members of the court he and Alito do tend to um, agree on on a large number of things you can kind of always uh, find the two of them um, hanging out together in, in the opinions and so for him to want to go a so Alito authored this opinion and for Thomas to want to go I believe all this, that's all good, but we should also do this, that demonstrates that they were not in lockstep about that issue. They were not in lockstep about the concept of substantive due process. If Thomas, who is good friends with Alito, had been able to get Alito there, then the opinion might look different. They might have, it it might look a little bit different. He did bring up the point that nobody's asking us to revisit any 14th Amendment issues right now, so that's why we're not going to. And so it does remain to be seen it's tbd about what that might look like in the future but i don't think he has the numbers to um remove the concept of substantive due process
0: so um as of this conversation i was i was um trying to monitor as best possible what's going on in every state uh it appears that six states have officially now said that the procedure is illegal arkansas louisiana south dakota Kentucky, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Um, This essentially kicks the issue back to the states. Can you explain, Sharon, the practical implications of this? The court has basically said, abortion is no longer our business. States, it's up to you. How does that play out?
1: Mm. I do think this is one thing that is interesting to note, having read all 213 pages of this decision, um, is that the all of the people in the majority, and including some of the concurring opinions, have said that this is an issue for voters and their elected representatives. They have not used the word state. There is one place where they have said, you know, like states can states are free to, to regulate it, but they repeatedly have used the phrase voters and their elected representatives, not states. And so to me, That is noteworthy, because we have many elected representatives at the federal level. And so that, to me, was leaving a foot in the door for Congress to act on this. They did not close the door to, like, only states can regulate this and not Congress. They did not do that. So, But because Congress has a difficult time, as we all know, um, agreeing on things right now, um, the chances that Congress will act Are very, very, very negligible in part because of the filibuster in the Senate. Even if uh, the Democrats in the House wanted to pass a right to abortion, um, they couldn't get it passed the Senate, and vice versa. So it's very unlikely that today Congress will act on it. That could change, though, after the 2022 midterms. So what it does right now is it leaves it up to the state legislatures, and the state legislatures have huge, hugely divergent viewpoints on this topic, as you've mentioned. Um, You have some states declaring themselves like planting a flag as an abortion sanctuary of like, listen, we'll make it easy to come here. What do you need? Um, And then you have some states uh, who have very quickly um, enacted uh, trigger laws that make it illegal as soon as the precedent to Roe versus Wade uh, is overturned, which it has been.
0: And then we have a whole bunch of states in the middle it's just fascinating to see whether it's uh, wisconsin which has an 1849 law on the books um banning abortion michigan has a 1931 law That's um, right. notable in both states in michigan's case you have a democratic governor there north carolina is also a state where you have a democratic governor and republican legislature so you know as as people people are asking right now how do i have an impact on this issue in in my state and it sounds like there's about a third of the union right now where the issue is, is sort of up for debate and the laws could change. I mean, could we see a scenario here, Sharon, where it could be legal one year and then reversed and then it could keep kind of sort of flip flopping in some of these states?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's less likely because the gatekeeper to either keeping abortion legal in a state or keeping it illegal in a state is the governor and so the governor either vetoing or signing bills into law and governors serving four-year terms certainly it's possible that a state could move to the right or to the left and in the future be different than they are today. But I don't think it's a a matter of like, every time we have an election, it's one way or the other. I think the governor is going to be, you know, I've mentioned this before to you, that this is going to place um, even more significance on the role of a governor in the state even more significant on uh, making sure that the governor that you vote for aligns with your views on abortion, because they are going to be in many ways, either the person who allows the restrictions to move forward or stops them from moving forward. So yes, they could change over time, but I don't see it as a like every year we have different rules, it won't be that drastic.
0: And and I wanna go back to the thing you were just talking about, which is leaving the door open for the federal government. To do something here this is the idea i think of of uh what some people refer to as codifying codifying roe um and so you know the president uh in his reaction to the ruling said you know elect more democrats so we can codify roe at a federal level and at the same time you could also see republicans take congress and republicans take the white house back and they could go they could effectively ban abortion federally is is that your reading of this case
1: sure yeah, so that's entirely within the realm of possibility after 2024, if um, if uh, people who do not agree with abortion are elected in large enough numbers. If there are 60 Republican senators, um, that would be. Uh, and 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 to be fair, not every Republican is uh and does not believe in abortion some republicans like i'm thinking of like susan collins etc do believe in abortion rights um but if you have 60 republican senators who uh, are pro-life it is it very well within the possibility um if you can get to that threshold um if they take back the house which they are predicted to do in 2022 um, and you have a large upheaval in the senate in the coming years uh, and a president that aligns with that, I do think it is within the realm of possibility that it could be um, that abortion restrictions would be codified federally.
0: We, we've got a few questions here, Sharon, on uh, what role and power the president has when it comes to this issue. Uh, what power does President Biden currently have and where are the limits to the president's power when it comes to a Supreme Court decision like this?
1: Mm. The president does not have a lot of power in a scenario like this. The, the reach of the president's arm uh, does not extend particularly far on matters uh, related to the Supreme Court. The president's check on the Supreme Court is choosing who to nominate. Um, he doesn't have any power to be like, listen, bad idea. I don't like it. Redo kick it to the congress. None of that exists. So President Biden's power to change what the Supreme Court said is is next to none. A way to people are also asking how can we check the Supreme Court's power? One way that the legislature could do that, this is not going to happen, but one way they can do that is to change the constitution. And so then by default the Supreme Court's decision would need to change. I, again, I don't think that's going to happen. But in terms of what he can do, um, he theoretically can direct executive departments within the federal government. So, of course, he's in charge of all these executive departments, that um, Health and Human Services, etc. He can direct them to make rules um, that do things like um, provide... Uh, training support things along those lines for abortion providers in various states um but again without the ability to spend money which the president does not have the power of the purse he does not have the ability to spend money that's not already been allocated by this by the legislature um his ability to create any kind of um substantive change on this matter is very small
0: uh, we talked about the majority opinion i'd love to talk about the dissent this is the three liberals um on the court um what did you make of of what they or lay out for me the the highlights of what they said in their dissent um and if they laid out if at all any openings for them to sort of rein in uh this case or reverse this case some at some point in the future mm.
1: Well, I think that it's fair to say that the three dissenters fundamentally disagreed with absolutely every characterization that the majority made. Uh, When the majority said that the Constitution doesn't have the right to an abortion, and the way that we tell if an unenumerated right is is available, is using that two-part test that I just mentioned a few moments ago, they completely took issue with that. And they gave examples of, so are you saying then that something that is well you know established in our history and traditions what about this what about this what about this they gave examples of other things that are present that were present in the past um and they they essentially called them hypocrites and said this is a hypocritical view where you are essentially I'm, I'm paraphrasing but you're picking and choosing things to be based on history and not picking and choosing other things so that was one thing they also completely disagreed with the idea that Roe and Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the uh, precedent of those cases should be abandoned. They spent truly dozens and dozens of pages um, laying out a case for why the majority was making the wrong decision when it came to overruling Roe and Casey. Um, So those are two of the big things. Uh, You you guys are making the wrong decision about overruling this precedent. And number two, you are you're making decisions that are hypocritical um and they, the dissent ended with saying you know this is a very it's with sorrow that we we you know we lament essentially for the court i did think it was interesting however that Breyer, who wrote the dissenting opinion did at the end and i put this in my instagram stories a quote from it he did at the end say that the court's legitimacy is at stake And people should never feel like their constitutional rights are hanging by a thread. And his fear was that that is what is being affected by this ruling.
0: You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, uh, because it comes out, I noted a poll that came out this morning just ahead of the case by Gallup that showed that American confidence in the Supreme Court is down to 25%, meaning one in four Americans has confidence in the Supreme Court, three in four Don't agree with that statement what implications does that have sharon Mm.
1: well i think to some people the legitimacy of the court is of paramount importance because how do you get somebody to follow a court order right you know like in the past in american history there have been presidents like my favorite president andrew jackson Mm -hmm. my favorite least favorite president um who have just said if you want that to be your decision then you come down here and enforce it There have been multiple times in the United States' history, I'm thinking about the Little Rock Nine, I'm thinking about school integration in Alabama, where governors have just completely ignored the rulings of the court. And the president has then been forced to do what? Bring out the military to enforce the Supreme Court's orders. So people taking the Supreme Court's legitimacy, um, taking the Supreme Court's rulings as legitimate is actually of extraordinary importance. So when you see this waning confidence in the Supreme Court, and this, again, this is not about whether you agree with abortion or don't agree with abortion. This is about the public's perception of the court. Um, and people on the right, in some cases, um, feel like the court is not legitimate for different reasons than people on the left feel the court is not legitimate. There's, they, they, in some cases, they agree that, it's, that they don't have confidence, but they agree for different reasons so the legitimacy of the court and the willingness to uphold the rule of law which is you know at the cornerstone of what the court uh, espouses the willingness to uphold that is um very very important it's hard to overstate how important the court's legitimacy is to its rules being followed
0: yeah you, you and i have discussed this at length sharon because it just feels like you know going back now at least in the last 10 to 20 years, whether it's the CIA, the CDC, the FBI, the FDA, the Supreme Court, um, that, you know, there is this general loss of trust um, in institutions. Yes. In, and, and in some cases, you know, for legitimate reasons, right? Uh, legitimate mistakes, but generally speaking, this sort of, where are we as a nation when um, those major institutions that uh, make the huge decisions that have huge impact on our society and our country uh, what does it mean when when the majority of the population starts to lose trust in all of them mm.
1: yeah we I, re, I mean we have talked about this at length and that is a very very serious and consequential issue when the majority of a country's citizens do not believe in its founding documents they don't believe in its uh, in its organizations they don't believe in any of the um, groups that the government puts out or you know puts together um, that's a very serious issue it, that, that issue right there leads to things like violence. Right. It leads to things like violence. The logical conclusion of, dis, of extraordinary distrust in governmental institutions is violence. That is how it has been throughout the entire course of history. I don't think you can show me one country where it has not ended in violence.
0: I wanna go back uh, to the initial Roe v. Wade ruling, which was a seven-two ruling Five of the justices uh, who ruled in favor of Roe uh, were appointed by Republicans. Mm-hmm. How did things change and shift over the last 50 years? How, how did it come to pass that Roe was decided by a majority conservative court, mm-hmm. um, and yet we find ourselves now at a 6-3 conservative majority court, and they're completely reversing it?
1: Mm. I, you, there's no way that you can say that um, the, role of the court has not changed over the last 50 years. I'm thinking back to um, the confirmation hearings of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the 90s, um, where she was confirmed by, she was confirmed like 97 to two or 96 to two in the Senate, overwhelmingly. And the criteria was, do you have the right skills do you have you are you a, the right type of lawyer like have you tried these kind of cases or do you have the right skills to do this job and if you have the right skills then great you would be confirmed um did it mean that everybody in congress in the 90s was uh, a liberal no they just looked at the facts that she had the right skills and confirmed her um and the, gone are those days right Gone are those days. And I think you, I mean, I'm not somebody who likes to um, overly blame one institution or one organization, but I don't think that you can discount um, the role of social media in this topic, the role of social media campaigns that then pressure legislatures, legislators to act in a certain way. Um, And many legislators find that acting in a way that is, inflammatory means more money in the bank. And so often we say things like, why can't people just be nice and like work for their constituents? And why can't they just go to Washington and do their jobs? Um, they need to make money to continually run for reelection. And one of the best ways they do that, and this is borne out by statistics, one of the best ways to do that is by having little snippets of videos go viral so that they can um, cash in on the, People saying like, yeah, I like what she had to say or what he had to say, and they donate to their campaign. So all of those things have greatly influenced the court over the last uh, fifty years. Um, and it's not just that Congress has influenced the court; it is that the expectations of the court have changed. We want to use the court to uh, to obtain an ideological end, when that was not has not always been the case. So because of that extremely polarized confirmation process and selection process, many justices now view their role on the court as a means to an ideological end when that was not the case in the past.
0: So it's not that something changed in conservative judicial philosophy, or has there been an evolution there as well?
1: I I mean, there absolutely has been, but conservative judicial, conservative today means something different than conservative 50 years ago, right? So there have always been originalists. There have always been textualists. There have always been people who say, I don't see the word abortion in the constitution. That's always been a thing. But conservative today means something different than conservative used to mean. Um, There was this, this time period in the United States history where we went through in the 1950s and 60s, we went through this great expansion of rights in the United States. We went through this great expansion of things where we were exploring, what are all of the unenumerated rights? Um, How can we make sure that people have those? How can we make sure people have the right to vote and are treated fairly? Like for example, the Supreme Court never, the constitution never mentions women. Women are not in the Constitution. Um, And yet there was this great expansion of ways that the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, Due Process Clause might expand to include more people. And so that was sort of the way the pendulum swung during that middle part of the 20th century, 50s, 60s, uh, early part of the 1970s. And then we have slowly uh, seen the pendulum begin to swing. You saw it in the 1990s uh, with Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, start moving in this direction. And now we're seeing the pendulum swing this way. The good news is that the pendulum has always swung. The good news is the pendulum never stops. The pendulum will always swing this way and this way. Um, What's happening today is a reaction to things that have happened in the past. That's how history works.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting coming in the same week, uh, Sharon, that there has been this uh, also this landmark ruling in regards to um, gun control. Mm -hmm. and gun laws and Second Amendment interpretation. And even there, there's been an interesting evolution in how the Second Amendment has been um, thought about by uh, conservative justices.
1: Very much so. Um, I think there is a mistaken belief in America that everybody has always been able to have all the guns that throughout our entire history, it's just been like, do whatever you want. Uh, And that is not the case at all. Um, In fact, following JFK's assassination, um, many, um, even conservative legislators at that time, voted for more gun control. Um, In fact, the NRA, Said, we want more gun control after JFK was assassinated. The NRA went to Congress and was like, We don't want people to be able to buy guns out of the back of a magazine because that is what the person who assassinated JFK did. He bought a gun out of the back of a magazine. And so this idea that it has always been one way in America is not based in fact. Uh, America used to have extremely high taxes on things like machine guns, like during the 1930s, during this sort of like gangster era that we're th- that you think of, and the tax was hundreds of dollars on one weapon, which is the equivalent of around fifty thousand dollars today. Mm. Um, so if you think about the uh, tax being the tax on a machine gun in the 1930s being the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars it wasn't that you couldn't own them necessarily but they were heavily regulated and you had to pay a lot of money to be able to get one so yes again the pendulum has swung will the pendulum swing back the other way it will
0: um, right, it, it comes the same week that you saw a, a landmark um, a bipartisan uh, compromise on gun safety on Capitol Hill. Yes. Obviously, un- unrelated matters, but still interesting nonetheless. Uh, one of the questions, Sharon, and I don't know if we know the implications yet coming back to the abortion ruling, is in regards to IVF and the implications mm-hmm. there and concerns there. Mm-hmm. What do we know right now? What, if anything, is there any mention in the ruling of it? or um, And how, how should folks interpret that?
1: It does not mention IDF, it doesn't touch IDF. And so the interpretation is it's up to states to determine what they want to do when it comes to IDF. Um, and the Supreme Court has said this twice this week, both in um, related to uh, another decision and in this decision, that these are not matters for the court. These are not judicial matters. These are matters for the voters and their representatives. And they're elected representatives, so the interpretation should be: every state will decide for themselves how they want to handle that. Now, some states may go so far as to create restrictions about things like the disposal of embryos that are not used in IVF process. Some states are already making, you know, there's little iterations about um, potentially moving in that direction. Do I think there will be a huge, widespread uh, elimination of IVF? No, not at all but you may have some states create additional restrictions about how embryos are treated once they're created via the IVF process.
0: One question I had now that this ruling has come down, what does it mean for the, the cases we've been following related coming out of that Texas case, the six week case, and the new way that they approached Uh, the law. Is that still going to be going through the court system? And what are the implications of that, if you could explain that to folks?
1: Yeah, it is still going through the court system. And the Supreme Court declined to restrict that law on an emergency basis. They let the law stand on an emergency basis Mm -hmm. while it worked its way through the court system. Um, And so the the Supreme Court hasn't actually um, officially agreed to even hear that case in the Supreme Court yet. They have just declined to put a restriction on its enforcement. So as of right now, that law still stands. And as of right now, um, the, by the way, the dissenters mention that Texas law in the opinion. They mention it. Um, so as of right now, I would say my assumption will be that they will be allowed to proceed without law. If, if the Supreme Court agrees to hear it, which it's not clear that they will yet, but if they do, my assumption is that they will allow it to stand. Because if they saw serious structural deficits with the law itself, they would have stopped it on an emergency basis. And so because they didn't stop the, stop it on the basis of structural deficits, they're not likely to stop it on the basis that there is a constitutional right to an abortion.
0: It's just so interesting because the way it was written it was very carefully written to yes. get around uh, a state of ban. Again, it says you know it lets citizens sue anyone who aids or bets in an abortion, and obviously has implications for other issues as uh, as well. So is that something we should be watching in the next couple of years? What, when will we get a sense of, as to where? the law might come down there because I think California was thinking about a law in a, in a different way Mm -hmm. using that precedent. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Other states like Missouri and Idaho have also made already made moves to enact similar laws. Um, and in some cases, states like Missouri have gone even a bit farther, which is to um, allow somebody to sue anyone who helped transport somebody who was going out of state to seek an abortion. So they went even a, a step farther. But other states like California, like you mentioned, uh, took the position of two can play this game. Who can play at this game. We will now, this is, again, this hasn't been passed, but this is something that they have threatened to pass. We'll now allow one citizen to sue another citizen if your gun kills somebody. You can If your gun kills somebody and it's not demonstrated to be hunting, it's not demonstrated to be uh, self-defense, then we'll allow private citizen lawsuits. So California's perspective, again, they haven't passed this, but their perspective, and they might be joined by other states, um, is we'll just go ahead and uh, use the tool that you created in ways that you don't like to achieve our ends.
0: The last time we spoke about seven or eight weeks ago was when the leak came out. Um, and wondering, taking a look back at the leak draft versus the final decision, any major changes there, Sharon? And- what are the lessons or implications of the leak moving forward? Because I know Roberts has been investigating this allegedly, but we haven't heard much about what, uh-huh. what he's found. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. Okay, so in terms of, this is one of the things I was reading the opinion for, like how um, significantly did the final version change from the leaked draft? And I will say that the language and the writing has been stepped up a lot. Um, it's it it makes it very obvious that the leaked draft was a, you know, sort of a rough stab at things of like, here's where I'm thinking that I'm going because the, the writing is much more narrative. It's much more poetic, especially in the introduction. It's much more easy for an ordinary citizen to follow. It doesn't have a lot of legalese in it. Um, but the, the general basis upon which the logic of this case rests has not changed. The same thing is true, we, we talked before about the, the well-ordered liberty and deeply rooted in history and tradition. Those are still the same premises that Alito writes the opinion from.
0: So over on Capitol Hill, um, you have Senator Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, a few others saying uh, they feel misled um, during the uh, confirmation hearings by several of these justices. And there's a bunch of uh, montages you can see online of what each of the conservative justices said in their confirmation hearing about Roe being precedent uh and of course how they rule today. Mm-hmm. How do we think this changes the confirmation process and what you know because I was just so curious now that it's actually come out as a decision you know how do the Susan Collins' of the world and the rest of the Sanders vet justices moving forward?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question uh, definitively uh, because what can you do other than look at their judicial record and ask them questions? I don't know what else one can do. Um, There is no law that, this is a question I'm getting a lot, is can anything be done about the the discrepancy between what people like um, Bartlett, or Barrett and um, Gorsuch said, the discrepancy between what they said and the way that they're ruling today. Can anything right. be what, done about what that? What sort of
0: accountability is available for Supreme Court justices, those That's nine right. individuals?
1: That's right. Um, and the answer really. Is, is none. There is no law that requires them to adhere to um, the stated positions that they took when they were interviewed. There's no law about that. The only way to remove a Supreme Court justice is to impeach them. Uh, and they, they would be impeached for bad behavior. So is it possible um, someday in the future that a Supreme Court justice could be removed from office for bad behavior? Yes, but does issuing a, an opinion classify as bad behavior in the eyes of the american legal system it doesn't so this does not issuing an opinion that differs from your stated position in a congressional interview does not rise to an impeachable offense Um, so aside from potentially putting forth legislation that regulates some of these types of um, things related to confirmation hearings. I don't see that there's anything um, that can be done from a legal perspective to make sure that justices vote vote the way they say they will.
0: Yeah, I mean, the question that keeps coming up in the comments (laughs) here is people are writing perjury, question mark, perjury, question mark, perjury, Mm -hmm. question mark, Sherry, can we charge Mm -hmm. them with perjury?
1: Mm. No. Um you can't charge them with perjury because they were offering an opinion on something. Um they're offering an opinion and they're saying, well that's established court precedent. That is I would I would want to adhere to that. Um and there's nothing again um and in that moment I don't think you can demonstrate that they were lying in that moment. The fact that they later issued a, a ruling that it, that runs counter to what they said during the interview, I don't think establishes a a, an intent to lie there would be a, it would be different if somebody said one thing in a hearing and then went home and sent an email to somebody and was like ha 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 just totally scammed them you know what i mean <laughs> right people you gotta prove storm. intent
0: right. yeah you gotta you you have to prove intent and one of the things sharon to take people into the room where they're deliberating and writing these decisions is one of the things supreme court justices do is form opinions and try to convince each other yeah. Of those opinions That's right, right? Yep. give people a sense of, of how it works they heard this case several months ago then there's the decision process and then of course the release how, how does it work from a to z hmm.
1: so after they hear the oral arguments first of all before they even agree to take the case they're already very familiar with it they already have all of the uh prior court transcripts they already have all of these briefs before they even agree to take the case so they already have a very good idea what the case is about before they agree to hear it then they then they hear it it's a very short proceeding um it usually takes under two hours um there's no witnesses there's no evidence there's no like call your next witness there's no cross-examination one attorney presents their main points the other attorney at points uh, presents their main points the justices ask questions. So then they go back to their offices, and then on the next scheduled conference day, which you know those are on the calendar on the Supreme Court website, you can actually see when their conference days are. On their next scheduled conference day, they go around the circle in order of seniority, and they each offer their thoughts on that case. Everybody gets a turn to speak without being interrupted. And then after everybody gets a turn in order of seniority, they go around and they offer an initial vote. And they'd see who's in the majority. And then once they have determined a majority, the most senior justice in uh, in the majority then gets to choose who will write the opinion of the majority, Um, and they assign it to somebody. And then anybody else who wants to write concurring opinions or dissenting opinions can. But during that meeting, during that conference meeting, where they're all going around speaking there, saying what they want to say, and then they go around and vote, um, they absolutely do have the opportunity to try to convince each other of their way of thinking. Then, this is the other thing, is that once the, the drafter of the majority opinion begins to write the opinion, and is like, here's my initial draft, that's circulated to all of the justices, and they try to get as many people on board with that opinion as possible the other justices can offer uh, you know, opinions of like, listen, this section I cannot get on board with, like get rid of that. And maybe they would convince them that that's a bad idea to include it. So there is the ability to persuade all the way up until the very end, until until the court releases the opinion, there's the ability for justice to persuade another justice. And we don't know those things. Those things are purposely obscured from the general public. Uh, We don't know how much um, Alito tried to get Roberts on board with his opinion, like just come to my side instead of writing a concurrence. We don't know those things. We don't know how hard Roberts may have lobbied to try to rein in the rest of the conservative majority. We don't know. But we do know they have the ability to do it.
0: Right. As we were discussing at the top of uh, this conversation, you know, John Roberts was hoping for a compromise here. He was hoping Mm -hmm. to kind of keep Roe in effect. But you know uh support the mississippi law basically take it down to 15 weeks that's right and we have no idea how or what sorts of conversations he had with the other five conservatives that's right
1: uh yes in ju- in roberts's concurrence he talked about uh, you know i agreed to hear this because i wanted to answer the question of is there any type of pre-viability restriction on abortion that is permissible and he wanted to answer that question only, the question posed by Mississippi itself. Um, and so that obviously, he didn't have the numbers. He didn't have the majority to answer only that question. There were enough people who wanted to go farther and answer a bigger question. To your question earlier about the leak, um, it's true of almost all investigations that we don't get a play-by-play. This is not you know like we're used to like, let's say there's a missing child. We're used to the police, op- the police chief going on TV every night and giving an update of what they're doing. And we've looked here. We need more volunteers. Here's what, I, here's what we know. That is, I think, sometimes the paradigm people have in their mind of what investigations should look like. They should look like we're searching for a missing child. But in reality, the vast majority of an investigation is behind closed doors. They do not come out and say, like, today, we searched everybody's cell phones and we didn't find anything. We just don't know. We don't know what they're doing, and that is normal. It's a normal investigatory technique to not tell the public everything that you're doing.
0: It's just so interesting, because when you think about the size of the group, available group, of Mm -hmm. who could have leaked this, you're not talking about that many people, right? Mm You're talking about a few Mm -hmm. dozen people. And so you would think in the last six weeks, like they've talked to the 40 or so people that might have been able to do this for Mm -hmm. whatever purpose. but at the same time, to your point, like Roberts ain't doing daily press conferences and yeah. see what happens. Where is your gut right now on the motivation of the leaker? Because this has been a hot discussion, right? Was it uh-huh. somebody on the left who wanted to early alert America to it? Was it somebody on the right? Uh-huh. Um, was it Roberts, you know, uh, uh-huh. someone in the middle trying to come to the compromise? What is your gut now, now that we're a couple months into this?
1: Mm, My gut remains the same, that I think it was somebody on the left who wanted to um, essentially warn Americans. Uh, I don't think, in my view, uh, the majority on this case benefits from leaking the opinion in advance. I don't see any benefit to them. Um, They have only put their own safety at risk. I don't see any benefit to them to be like, listen, heads up, here's what's coming down the pike. I only see a benefit to the other side. I definitely do not think it was Roberts at all. Um, I only see a benefit to the people on the left. Do you agree? Do you agree with me?
0: Yeah, I, I you know, like I've, I've wavered on this. I think the argument on the right is that by leaking it, you basically lock in the majority. You know, the, the argument there was it was leaked. And then you don't want one of the five to look like they're responding to public pressure to go with the robber's compromise. I mean, that's that's some 3D chess right there. Yeah. You know, I I I think the the, you know, a disenchanted liberal clerk uh, probably is your leading candidate on Mm -hmm. this one. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of a lot of the response I've gotten, and I imagine it's similar for you, Sharon, is people interested in having an impact on this issue especially now that it's gone to 50 state legislatures. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, 50. I mean, we know that about half the union is either pretty blue or pretty red. There ain't gonna be much in the way of changes, but for a lot of those states that you know, are purplish and people are looking to have an impact, what are you telling people about, okay, you care about this issue one way or another, here are things you can do? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, any type of legislative change, no matter what it is that you're looking for, um is best brought about by large numbers of people so your ability to change something alone is not as impactful as your ability to change things with a group so i always tell people join an organization that espouses what you believe in if you're somebody who um really believes in um making sure that we have pro-life communities, join an organization that has um, the muscle, the manpower, the resources, the connections, the money to promote those at your state level. It's not enough to just join a national organization. You need to do something at your state level. If you're somebody who is very pro-choice and you want to see abortion uh, rights expanded, or protected in your state, you can do the exact same thing. So that's one thing, join an organization because there is power in numbers, there is power in the know-how and the connections that organizations have. But but secondly, I have been uh, saying this for a while and I know you agree with me. Um, If you want legislative change, the best way to do that is to get different people making the laws. Right. If you have the same people making the laws, you're going to get the same kind of laws
0: over right. it, and over. It turns out we have elections in this country every two years.
1: <laughs> but it needs to... This is, this is the piece that is missing in most of America is people need to start caring about primary elections. If you want a different legislature, you need to start caring about primary elections. The vast majority of, of races in this country not just some, the majority of races in this country are decided in the primary because of how, how strongly right or blue a district leans. They're decided in the primary, and the primary is decided by a small number of voters. So by extension, that means who's representing America is decided by a tiny fraction of America.
0: Yeah, I I sit here in New York, uh, where we have our primary coming up on Tuesday. And what's so interesting is that, you know, in the fall, you'll hear from folks, I'll hear from folks, and they'll be like, wait, how did how are these my two choices? Yeah, what happened? Well, actually, it turns out, folks, that you had a chance to have an impact on those two choices in Mm -hmm. the primaries. But I mean, do you know offhand, Sharon, what's the average percentage of voters that vote in primaries these days?
1: Mm, Well, it varies widely. By state. Um, But, and it depends on the race, you know. So, presidential primaries obviously have a much bigger turnout, but local primaries, in some cases, I I have a lot of election workers, poll workers in my community who will write to me and be like, I worked at the primary today. Um, I recently spoke to somebody who said that her precinct had a 7% voter turnout for the primary election. Um, And, but I hear from some other people that it's like, we had 40%. That's amazing. Like, 40% voter turnout in a primary is premium. So if we know that 40% is a really, really, really good number, um, that means that we have a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, though, <laughs> a lot though, of work to do. Though, again, depending on the state you live in, you might only be able to vote in the primary if you're a member of that party. Yeah, so if- yes.
1: But that's talking about eligible voters. The forty percent voter turnout is like people who could actually vote in this primary. Only forty percent of them turned up.
0: Right. right. Yeah. Um, and and I'll ask you a personal question, Sharon. Though I know we have like to keep it, uh, you know, keep it on the news, keep it on the policies, keep it on the history. But you know, as as a woman in America, there's a baby formula shortage. There's this abortion ruling. There's uh, you know women having to leave the workforce during COVID uh to go be the primary caregiver many women who were uh you know more impacted by covid and not be able to return to the workforce uh, how does it feel right now to be a woman in america and you know um adjacent to that what are you hearing from many of your followers and mm. your community
1: well i, I don't want to comment on abortion but i yeah. will say that um i hear from a lot of people that they feel like like i'm just out here trying to like raise my kids and work at my job and it feels like i am getting tomatoes thrown in my face in every turn um you know like i can't get enough food to feed my baby through no fault of my own that seems that is crazy um people feel like um you know I, i recently i had a friend who um who was passed over for a promotion that she very much deserved um, because they, you know, wanted to go with somebody who was willing to take less money. So I think that is always—it's a challenge in this moment to deal with the impossibility of um, tasks and and um, duties that are put on American women right now, especially when we were talking about um, COVID school closures women were simultaneously expected to completely revamp work from home at a job they'd never worked from home before at while caring for all of their children and making sure those children were attending school online that is an impossibility if anybody has had children doing this you've been trying to work from home i don't know one single person who's like this is working out you know what I mean? Nobody's like, I love, it. I hope this is the future. Um, you know, it's,
0: it's, it's funny. There was a survey out recently about returning to the office and people were noting the timing that suddenly we saw an uptick and people wanted to return to the office. And people are like, well, of course, it's the end of May, early June. Of course people want to return to the office. Kids are home.
1: hmm mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but you're absolutely right that, that the majority of that Um, child care in terms of overseeing the online education of their children while trying to work, um, that fell on the shoulders of women.
0: Absolutely. Um, Sharon, any, um, the ruling is out. Um, Obviously we were talking about the six week ban in Texas and that's still kind of working its way through the courts. Um, What are you watching now when it comes to the abortion issue in the coming days, weeks and months?
1: Mm. I think it's going to be interesting to see. This is the the thing that I have my eye on the most closely is the enforcement of trigger laws. As you mentioned at the top of this, there are some trigger laws that have been on the books for close to 100 years or over 100 years. And it's quite possible that if you have a pro-choice governor right now who's the head of the executive branch at a state, it's quite possible that a pro-choice governor may not want to enforce that trigger law. Um, Or there could be I do think there's a the potential to be quite a bit of litigation surrounding trigger laws themselves, which are largely kind of an untested, uh, uncharted legal waters is, is a, a trigger law that was written long ago, is it enforceable under today's uh, legal scrutiny? I think that is one of the biggest areas, fields of interest of mine is what will happen to the trigger laws.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about Michigan being a case where we have a pro-choice governor. Uh, she's been making the uh, rounds today on television. Wisconsin's fascinating because it's literally like, well, when's the last time we wrote an abortion law? 1849? Is mm-hmm. that even enforceable? Right. Um, and a whole constitutional debate happening in Madison, Wisconsin right now mm-hmm. as to what what to do there. Mm-hmm. So um, that be- start start to look those up folks Mm -hmm. we're gonna we're gonna be having a whole discussion Sharon when is your um gonna be your lesson on trigger laws when can I sign up for that
1: (laughs) well first I need to watch it for a while before I have something to say (laughs)
0: all right sounds good Sharon McMahon thank you so much uh for uh breaking things down in the way that only you can um and I know that uh I don't have to tell folks who already follow you, stay tuned for that. I think they call it a caterpillar across the screen on IG stories, Sharon. (laughs) Yes,
1: where it's just like "Ah!"
0: And um, and, and, uh, by the way, there have been some comments on the screen that tomorrow they would just like you to do animals. And that's it.
1: (laughs) All like whales, I would take a chicken. If you have any eagles, I would take like a fat seal snoring on the beach.
0: Just animals all day. Generally, no matter where you land on this topic, uh, you just want a distraction this weekend from what was a really um, wild... and consequential week i think that's a better word for it when it comes to guns january 6th supreme uh and the court obviously on abortion so we'll see what next week has in store for us ahead of the july 4th holiday but sharon thank you so much uh Mm. for joining me
1: my pleasure thanks for inviting me
0: our thanks again to sharon mcmahon for her incredible insight You can read more about our conversation in the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bolton.com. You can also watch our conversation. We did it live on Instagram. So you can check that out over on my Instagram page at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And just want to say I'm so grateful to all of you for listening to this podcast. Please consider following us on the app you're listening to us on right now and leaving us a review. See everyone next week.